Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solve Virginia University. Today is our last episode of Season 4 of BAPcast already. It's a bittersweet day in that we're going to be going away for a little while, but we will come back with more seasons shortly. And today's episode very interesting. I'll be speaking with Sandra Ruby and Florence DeGenera Reed about their paper, Evaluating the Effects of Technology-Based Self-Monitoring on Positive Staff-Consumer Interactions in Group Homes. Sandra is a doctoral candidate in the Performance Management Laboratory at the University of Kansas, where she works under the mentorship of Dr. Florence DeGenera Reed, our other guest. Florence is a professor in the Department of Applied Behavioral Science at the University of Kansas, where she serves as the departmental chairperson and directs the Performance Management Laboratory. Florence serves on the board of directors for the BACB, and she's also been an associate editor for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, Journal of Behavioral Education, and Behavior Analysis in Practice, as well as being on the editorial boards of the Journal of Organizational Behavior Management and others. This was a really fun, interesting conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's my interview with Sandra Ruby and Florence DeGenera Reed. Hello, Sandra and Flo. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hello. Hi there. We're really excited to have you on the show today to talk about your paper titled Evaluating the Effects of Technology-Based Self-Monitoring on positive staff-consumer interactions in group homes. I have a a passion for anything related to group homes. I sort of started my clinical career working with adults in group homes. So when I saw this paper was was in this issue and I had the opportunity to talk with you all about it, I was like over the moon excited. And so I'm really excited to jump into it. Before we jump into the topic, we always like to learn a little bit about our guest, hear a little bit about their background, you know, maybe what drew them to behavior analysis, and then what really drew them to this particular research topic. And so would each of you mind giving the audience a little bit of information about yourself? Sure, I will start. I'm Sandra Ruby, and I am a graduate student here at the University of Kansas, and I work with Flo DeGenera-Reed. And I really got into behavior analysis because I needed a job in undergrad. And I had some friends who worked in an autism center and they said, you know, you might like this, come join. So I interviewed, got the job and really fell in love with the processes, procedures, behavioral principles um, while working with kids. 
And then I also found moving into the organizational behavior management side that the staff who work with the kids needed some supports. Um, And I saw that if the staff weren't supported, the outcomes for the kids and the quality of services wasn't as great as it could be. So when I found that Flow did OBM and you could apply the principles of behavior to the workplace, um, I was very motivated to do something in that area, um, which drew me to KU and the work that Flow did with particularly working in human service settings, but also looking at research and combining the two of them, um, which brought me into more of this study. When I first came in, I was straight from undergrad. So Flow gave me time to just dive into the literature, see what was out there in OBM um, so that I could find a topic that I enjoyed and was passionate about, but also that could help in human service settings. So came through a lot of things. Flo and I had quite a few conversations. Um, and one of the topics, which was self-monitoring, um, really stuck, stuck out to me because it had been successful in so many ways in different settings, different populations, different modalities um, that I wanted to, you know, starting my first research project, wanted it to be successful, but also beneficial for the staff who worked with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities in group homes. Nice. So when you when you were looking for a job and ended up working, what year undergrad were that, you? In? I was going into my junior year. Um, I had had some respite work that I did before that, but nothing very as formal as working in an autism center. Um, and then I was able to. I went to Fresno State as my undergrad, and I worked with. Dr. Stephen Payne, and he really was able to guide me in taking classes that were behavior analytic and work with the behavior analysts that were faculty, Um, you know, instead of maybe taking classes that were taught by a cognitive psych person. They didn't have a behavior analytic major, but um, KU does, and I find the value in that coming here. Um, It's very special. Shout out to KU. Um, And I was able to kind of tailor my undergraduate experience to get as much behavior analysis as I could in those last two years. And did you know as an undergrad, like you were, you had this interest in the OBM side of things, or was that like a little bit later? Like when did that sort of interest start to bloom for you? Um, Well, I started out as a bio major and then I was reading my psychology textbooks and wanted to spend time doing that. Then when I layered on top of that, the actual practice of behavior analysis, um, I was sold on behavior analysis. And then when I saw maybe a year or two into working um, at the autism center, that it was the staff side and the system side that I was very interested in. So I think by my senior year, I had I was sold and wanted to do more OBM, not necessarily just working with kids. Um, I had also had experience with um, Stephen Payne working in his animal lab. So I also saw how behavior analysis could be applied to different species. Um, But from those experiences, I really knew that I wanted to work on the staff level, Um, but that was in my, my final year. 
That makes sense. I'm always, I'm always fascinated in that journey with the people who sort of get more and more interested in that supervision or OBM side. And I just think it's a, it's a kind of a, in some ways a unique component of, of like a mental health uh, profession, like behavior analysis, like my, my partner's a clinical psychologist. She doesn't have to worry about really managing or supervising people. Like she's the clinician and, and she works directly with the, with her client or patient. Whereas in our field, very rarely are, are behavior analysts directly working with the actual clients. And it adds this complicated layer uh, of making sure that services are being provided in a high quality manner. Um, so I'm very much interested in sort of those intersections. And so I, I'm always curious when people start talking about that, like where did, where did like it switch for you? Were you always interested in that? Was it doing it for a little bit? And so thanks for sharing that. Flo, would you mind giving us a little bit of your background and, and why this topic, why behavior analysis? Sure. Um, so a lot, lot longer ago than Sandra. <laughs> Talked, I almost gasped when I did the, the math and realized it was 30 years ago I discovered behavior analysis. Um, I was a freshman at Binghamton University, and someone I was friends with recommended taking a class to work in an on-campus clinic. Um, so I did, and I think my first semester I was early sophomore. And um, I didn't really have any strong feelings about it initially. It was fine. And I had wanted to be a pediatrician. So I liked kids. I was pre-med at the time. And then something happened between Thanksgiving and New Year with this one child we were working with. And I saw a real shift in uh, reduction of problem behavior and increases in communication skills. And I, that for me, I was like, there's something here. There's something really fantastic here. So I knew I wanted to, to pivot, um, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So my journey to figure out what I wanted to do took a little bit. After my um, undergrad, I got a master's in experimental psych because I liked research and felt like it would buy me a couple of years to figure it out. And I had worked with only children with autism and other disabilities at that time. I hadn't worked with adults yet. And then after my master's degree, I got into a PhD program, but wasn't sure it was for me. So I decided to take a few years off and moved to a part of the state in New York that had virtually no or no autism services for kids really at that time. And uh, BC, the BCBA wasn't a thing yet. Um, it took a couple of years later until there were like three of us across four counties and it was a big deal. Um, I started working with adults and fell in love with it. Um, it was a completely different ball game. I enjoyed it immensely. Um, and I started noticing between my work with children and adults, much like Sandra, like if staff aren't doing what is prescribed, then there aren't is, is robust outcomes for the folks receiving services. And I was a bit shocked by the fact that a supervisor would come in and instruct staff to implement a procedure a particular way. And then the supervisor would leave the room and they'd do what they wanted anyway. And I apparently have a lot of rule-governed behavior. And to me, that just rattled me. And I wanted to understand more why that happened. I ended up going to get a PhD in school psych because I wanted to learn about um, behavioral consultation. My, my mentor was an expert in behavioral consultation. I wanted to learn about that. And um, 
So learned that process, studied for my dissertation, um, how to improve treatment integrity of teachers and educators working both in public schools and private um, programs serving uh, children with disabilities, and then continue to be more and more interested in performance management and then OBM. And now I'm at KU, I'm a professor there and get, every day get to experience the joy of mentoring others who wanna do this work. And so we just get to nerd out and talk about this stuff all the time. And my passion is human service settings. So we, we focus on that setting in terms of OBM. That's awesome. When you started working with adults, was that was that a curiosity you had? Like what, what drew you into working with that particular population initially? There were no jobs for, with kids. <laughs> so it was really serendipitous and I was quite lucky because if there were other options, I probably wouldn't have worked with adults and that pushed me. I had to be better. Um, I was a behavior analyst at the time even though I wasn't board certified. Like that was the, the lens through which I viewed the world. And you um, have to be, I think, a much more skilled behavior analyst to work with adults than kids in many ways. Um, Adults have rights that kids don't necessarily have. And so you can't restrict access to the TV or to an iPad because you want to use it as a reinforcer. As an adult, like any other adult, you get to access it. So it challenged me. Um, And that was one of the best jobs I had. I got to create... um, homes for people to live in and build them from the ground up or renovate them and make people's dreams come true and find um, folks for them to live with. And it really was a blast. Um, But it wasn't because I had any forethought or insight that this would be good for me. It was because it was the job that was available. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like a, a lot of people I talk to, students or even sort of maybe more junior BCBAs, they're always uh, often, many are really interested in kids and they have zero interest in doing anything with adults. And so like when my students say that, I always try to challenge them just to like get a, just give it a little bit, right? Like just, just let's do a little bit with adults. At the very least, I think having an idea of sort of the trajectory of your clients is incredibly important because, you know, going in group homes really gives you good perspective of probably what you should be working on as early as possible with, with children. But I, I see a lot of people, oh, I would never work with adults. They work with adults for a little while. And then it's like snap, you know, they're, they're, they're addicted to wanting to work yeah. with adults. It, it becomes a thing. And including myself in that, I, I really had no initial interest in working with adults. And I went to Western Michigan university Stephanie Peterson had a practicum working with adults in group homes and she talked me into trying that. I I did it and I loved it. So it's funny how these things end up oftentimes developing serendipitously and then become sort of a a big part of your life and your professional life. Now it happens. I think it's fun. You go down a path you didn't even anticipate going down, which is cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I always ask people these questions on the show and more often than not, people's path is very sort of serendipitous and, and sort of not planned out. And then, you know, every once in a while, someone is like someone, you know, I talk, I'll talk to 17 year olds who are interested in coming to Salve's program and, and studying behavior analysis as an undergrad. And they're like, I want to do behavior analysis. I'm like, how in the world do you know what behavior analysis is? Like, where is this coming from? It's, it's amazing, right? Like, 
I'm, I'm so happy when I hear that, but I'm always still so surprised uh, yeah. that they've even heard of the field. You're doing good outreach out there. That's impressive. Well, I think, uh, I think a lot of it is a lot of the people who tend to know and to be interested have families who are being served by behavior analysts. So maybe their brother has autism or, you know, something like that. And then I think they're honestly the ones doing the work to figure out what undergrad programs have those offerings and that kind of stuff. So I can't only, I can't really take credit for that. I think it's really the students just being prepared and being great students, honestly. Well, to segue into the paper and to talk a little bit more about sort of the, the context of, of group homes to sort of set the, the frame for, for the study and, and your approach within it. As we've been talking about, the study takes place in a group home. And at the beginning of your paper, you talk about some of the challenges or complications within that setting related to like you know, the stats and, and the needs for services. Could, could you talk about that? Could you talk about some of the some of the lack of resources and difficulties when looking at trying to make behavior change in group homes? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I can talk about it more broadly at a national level, but then I could talk about it within Kansas and our local community. Uh, at a national level, um, the resources for adult services are severely underfunded relative to resources to children's services. And so you're looking at larger ratios, um, um, sometimes large bed group homes. The agency where we did our work didn't, didn't have those types of homes, but that tends to be a national challenge. Um, staffing shortages, which is experienced right now by all industries, but particularly in adult services. Um, so there's just fewer resources. Um, and um, in terms of money, time, uh, sorry, money, people, um, and other commodities. Within the state of Kansas, the reimbursement rate for delivering services ends up being less than the cost it is to deliver services. So agencies have to be pretty creative about how they make the dollar stretch and often engage in entrepreneurial efforts or external consulting efforts to be able to pay the staff for the services that are being delivered because the state isn't reimbursing at a high enough rate, particularly with more involved consumers or consumers um, with um, high levels of problem behavior. And when I say more involved, like medically fragile um, adults and whatnot. So that's the broader context in the state of Kansas. The agency where we did this work is a friend of our department and partners with several of the faculty in their labs and have since its opening of 40 plus years ago. Um, doctors Jan Sheldon and Jim Sherman helped start the agency and they have since retired from the department, um, but there are several faculty now who are consulting with the agency in various capacities. The, th this project was born out of a project that Dr. Claudia Dozier's team had done, and my team had worked collaboratively with them on that, where they wanted to increase what they called healthy behavioral practices in the agency. And her work is in the assessment and treatment of problem behavior. So she partnered with us on the staff training side. They wanted to implement those practices. Those included providing access to preferred items and activities, providing effective instruction, engaging in good practices following behavior, and then facilitating positive interactions. 
So her graduate student at the time, now it's uh, Dr. B. Kamana. She did a huge, would have been a federally funded grant across like uh, over a dozen group homes with hundreds and hundreds of staff. And they implemented these practices and did ongoing coaching and competency checklists and whatnot. And that's a practice that still exists today in the agency. So if there were behavior analysts from Claudia's team who worked with a particular group home, they were regularly getting feedback and support on implementing these practices and they were good. The data looked really good. But there were some group homes in the agency that had other behavior analysts who weren't part of Claudia's team. And while they received training on implementing those practices, they didn't have a large enough um, team or group of resources to do the same competency checks. So we were concerned about the extent to which those practices were actually happening. And so one of the important ones that um, can help prevent problem behavior is facilitating positive interactions. So when Sandra came to me as part of her thesis, hey, I'm really interested in self-monitoring. And we had wrapped up the project with B, with her dissertation, and there was this gap of like, how do we continue to support across these different teams to implement these really important practices? We saw an opportunity. Um, my team also collaborates with the agency and has since I came to KU in 2010, and we work on the staff training, human resource system side of things. Um, which is fun. So they allow us to try to provide support to group homes and to teams of staff um, on the front end staff training side, but also with ongoing performance management practices. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, a really interesting sort of uh, background and the rationale as to uh, sort of why target this. We're going to speak a little bit more specifically about the positive interactions. We'll kind of save that when we start talking about method stuff and sort of talk about what that really looks like and, and that. But certainly a, 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 a established need and, and a really important sort of foundation or, or basic practice in group homes for several reasons. Sandra, as, as Slo was talking about, you were then interested in can self-monitoring potentially impact this behavior. Can you talk a little bit about what self-monitoring is and then maybe even why you took this particular unique approach with the self-monitoring? Like, where did that come from? Sure. So self-monitoring within behavior analysis is somebody recording the occurrence or non-occurrence of a behavior, which differs from other definitions of self-monitoring where it might just be you check in with yourself, am I doing this, that, or the other thing? Whereas in behavior analysis, it really is about recording your behavior, if it occurred or if it didn't occur. Um, and really what drew me to that is I knew that I was going to be implementing something and wanted to help staff do their job appropriately so that the consumers they work with could receive high quality services. Um, so I knew whatever the intervention or project we were going to be working on had to at least have some strength in a background of actually showing that it could improve performance on the staff level so that the consumers could benefit from that. Um, and then in most of the research that I had read showed that self-monitoring did improve performance. Um, so I felt pretty good about proposing 
this intervention to flow. Um, the problem was that a lot of the self-monitoring studies had that had taken place in group homes were done in the 70s and 80s. Um, and I mean, that was over almost 40, 50 years ago. So updating some of the methodologies, updating some of the packaged interventions. Um, I know that one that we used quite a bit was Bergio and colleagues. Um, it used goal setting, self-evaluation, self-reinforcement in addition to self-monitoring um, and something like Flo was mentioning, the resources in human service settings aren't, uh, they're not unlimited. So creating interventions that are resource sensitive was also something we had to consider. Methodologies that had used self-monitoring had several other interventions that were tied to um, self-monitoring. So we wanted to see, you know, how, what to the extent does self-monitoring actually improve um, performance from, from staff. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting application of self-monitoring considering the importance of these positive interactions. I'm gonna throw out a question from, from left field and like, feel free not to answer this. Uh, and, and it's purely speculative and, and I recognize that. But you, you point out that self-monitoring research mostly sort of fizzled out a little bit in, in the 1980s. And and I see that sometimes with different sort of research branches where like they seem to have sort of their heyday and then sort of dissipate. Do you have any sense as to like why, why self-monitoring isn't like, you know, constantly being researched right now that it seemed to sort of reach a climax and, and slow down? Is, is it because of the, the amount of resources that it typically requires if you're not using a technology base? Again, completely speculative here. You know, I don't expect anyone to know the, the exact answer, but any thoughts on that? So I have a few hypotheses. Um, I, if you're talking about self-monitoring with staff, because in the education literature, there are still contemporary studies that have looked at self-monitoring used by students in public schools, for example. Hmm. But with staff, a few things might be happening. One, a researcher might have come in to investigate, to address a particular problem, or it was a graduate student's thesis or dissertation, and then the study was completed, the dissertation was wrapped up, and that person went on to do something else. And so it wasn't really part of a line of research, right? So there are these different researchers that studied it. That's one. To the extent to which staff really find it acceptable and want to continue to implement it, for me, I'm not convinced of that. And we could talk a little bit later why that's the case, but it's adding another task to their already complex job responsibilities. And so it might be related to that. And then for me, I go in and out of my research interests, which is one reason why I love being in academia. Um, they all generally fall within performance management or OBM, but I'll study treatment integrity for a while or, while, or like I manipulate levels of treatment integrity and publish five papers on it. And then I'm like, okay, I'm a little burned out on that topic. I'll let someone else pick that up and I'll pivot over here. And then eight, nine years later, something will happen. And I'll say, oh, I have to ask this research question. Let me go back to that. So maybe that plays a role too. Yeah, I think I think that the things you point out, I think are interesting. I think that makes sense. And I, and I do see sort of 
with with other topics certainly sort of the ebbs and flows of you might go five six years with nothing i, I did a i did a literature review on um the treatment of lgbtq plus individuals in behavior analytic publications and and that was a huge thing it was like every 10 years i don't know like it was every 10 years there was like you know two or three papers and then 10 year gap and the two or three papers it's it's funny how those things can can work uh in, in in research so but again a little bit of an aside there to to bring things back into focus and, and talk about the specific research project that you did here so this took place in a group home you had you had mentioned that these particular group homes were those that were within a network that sort of had a larger study happening you then identified it sounds like maybe specific group homes how did you go into identify the specific participants within the group homes and, and could you speak about the specific participants of this study yeah, so we have a pretty strong relationship with this organization. So we were able to just talk with some of the supervisors in one of our bi-weekly meetings to see who would potentially benefit from a self-monitoring intervention. And then we were able to text those recommended participants to see if they were also interested. Um, and if they were, we... I met with them and we, you know, signed consent. I informed them of everything that would happen. Um, and we were able to get three participants that made it all the way through. One was a home supervisor and the home supervisor position for that participant really meant that they worked within one of the group homes. There's several throughout the organization, but they worked in one group home and would do some managerial things, but they would also work one-on-one -on -one as um, or as a direct support professional. Um, and then we had two who were just direct support professionals um, and didn't have those additional managerial tasks. Um, for all of the participants, they were all required to still engage with consumers on a regular basis um, and be involved in that way. How were they like selected by the managers? Were these people that didn't already have maybe very high rates of the positive inter interactions? Was that like, what were, what were the managers looking for? Maybe just people who would be willing to participate? Yeah, so it was people willing to participate, but also people who maybe didn't have as many interactions as they should. Um, the way that we formed our research question was really to see the effects of self-monitoring. So we came in, with the idea that maybe self-monitoring doesn't work. Um, would we be able to tell that? Um, so even if the person that we were working with as a participant had some interactions, if we implemented self-monitoring, having the idea that maybe it disincentivizes interacting with consumers. Hopefully that's not the case. Unfortunately, it wasn't. But um, being careful with how we worded our questions so that whoever was the participant um, would be able to experience self-monitoring. Um, but they were just people who were recommended, um, as you'll see in some of the baseline, they did have lower rates of interacting. Um, but overall, it was finding participants that 
were recommended from their supervisors. That makes sense. With the with the interaction piece, the positive interaction piece, was this something that they were like trained on as part of their job? Like, was this a part of their orientation or or whatever type of training where this is like something that is a is a bona fide sort of job expectation, or or is this a new skill for them? Yes. So they were during their initial training exposed to the criteria that they should interact with consumers at least you know once every 5 minutes and the interactions didn't have to be anything long or having a 10 minute conversation it could be something that they called a drive by interaction where it's you're walking through the living room and somebody is watching the tv hey how's it going while you're continuing to go make dinner whatever it is um so the interactions didn't have to necessarily be these long, drawn-out conversations. It could be something that was quick. And and within that, when you sort of began to target this in your paper, what were you looking for with a positive interaction? Was it that? Was it was it some sort of like spoken communication with the participant, or how did you define that? Yeah. So we defined a positive interaction in a few ways. Um, one of them being a compliment. So just something nice about the consumer to the consumer, a conversation. So any topic of a preferred activity or item that we know that the consumer likes to engage in greeting the consumer. So just, Hey, hi, how are you? Those types of, of salutations and then, um, appropriate physical interaction. So high fives, a pat on the back expression of care. You know, if you appear sad, comment on it. You you look sad. Is everything okay? And then praise. So, hey, great job. Or um, that was awesome. Thank you for working with us in the in the kitchen, whatever it is. Um, There were quite a few ways that they could interact with the consumers. And when you were looking at those you were coding, if I remember correctly, within five-minute intervals. And was it we were looking for one interaction within the five-minute intervals? Is that right? Yes. So we used five-minute partial interval recording. Um, and really, if any of those types of interactions happen to a consumer from the participant, we would count that as a positive interaction. Um, we used partial interval recording because conversation length very the types of interaction varied and it would be more difficult to code for that where the partial interaction or the um, partial interval recording would cover what we needed to, to assess if self-monitoring increased um, interactions. That makes sense. Cause if, if one type of positive interaction is a, uh, Hey, you doing good while they're watching TV or something. That's, you know, I don't know how long that takes two seconds, whereas, you know, hey, tell me what's going on TV if they've got a little bit longer, both positive interactions, but a little bit different in terms of the time. So partial interval makes sense there. How long were your recording sessions or how long were you observing for these behaviors? So each minute was or each session was 30 minutes um, and we would go in and observe from the 
organization that we worked with has a lot of technology and one of the technology pieces that they have is called iLink. Um, so there's 24 seven audio visual cameras in the home. So we were actually able to go and observe these sessions offsite, remote. Um, so we were able to say, okay, they started self-monitoring at this point, session would be 30 minutes. And we were able to go and observe those offsite. That, that's awesome resource for that technology. Were there, were there parameters of like, hey, we're going to be observing from three to three? Like, was there notification of that or was it any time within their shift? What did that look like? Yeah, so we wanted it to be during a time where they, the consumers were engaging in leisure activities um, because we did see that there were some interactions during um, transitions going from the home maybe to the day service center. We saw that there were interactions. We saw some interactions during dinner um, or during some of the programmed activities times. But what we saw was really during the leisure activity where those interactions would come into play. Um, they weren't happening. So we targeted the leisure activity time, which was from about 3.30 to six o'clock. Six o'clock is about when they started to have dinner. And then 3.30 is when they would get home from day services. Um, so that's why we targeted that, that time, but making sure that it wasn't just a time for the participants to sit on the couch and not engage with consumers for three hours. Well, and I have found that in group homes or day programs it's that leisure time where people are just sitting around doing nothing right. staff aren't interacting with them that are sort of highly problematic and so right. I think targeting that time specifically makes a lot of sense like <laughs> these are the times where staff typically you know or might need a little bit more you know, uh, encouragement or, or whatever it might be to, to engage in some of these behaviors. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And so within that, I think you said 3.30 to like six, did the, did the 30 minutes you observe sort of vary and depend for each participant or? Yeah, um, it was pretty much the, about the same time for each participant. Um, they, I would send them a text in the morning to see if they're gonna be available that afternoon. Um, in group homes, the schedule changes pretty often. So it might be that they're home that day, they might be going to the grocery store on a, a community outing. So it would be important to text them in the morning just to see what's possible for your schedule today. Um, and, you know, one of the purposes of interacting is as a preventative strategy to make sure that or to decrease the probability that consumers will engage in problem behavior. So during that leisure time, if staff aren't interacting with consumers, it just increases the probability of seeing some of the undesirable behaviors. And it reduces the opportunities that consumers have to engage appropriately and build stronger social relationships. Sandra mentioned that this agency is really technologically savvy and has uh, remote monitoring suite with active and passive sensors that alert uh, eye coaches there. Um, and um, what was really neat and what sort of drove some of our decisions around methodology was if we could 
leverage technology. And in this case, Sandra, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but it was a tablet and with a couple of different apps on it. We didn't necessarily envision in the future that the staff would use that technology, but because the agency has smart homes, that they, we could adapt it slightly so that all staff in the program within the home, there would be cues and what, you know prompts and whatnot built into the smart home that we could um, design intentionally to, to get the desired outcomes in terms of staff behavior. So just wanna um, just highlight that that was part of our decision-making process in looking at technology-based self-monitoring. That makes sense. And, and I've done a little bit with technology-based like data collection integrity. And one of the benefits is if you can program behavioral contingencies to happen via technology, you don't need a supervisor standing around uh, telling you to do something or prompts or feedback, whatever. Um, so just the, just, uh, the benefit on the resources uh, that that has. And we'll talk about your particular technology in a moment. I wanna sort of finish talking about the dependent variables we talked about, you know, the, the primary one being those positive interactions and the five minute partial interval systems, 30 minute observations. You had some secondary dependent variables. Could, could you speak about those and, and why you were interested in those? Sure, so one of our secondary dependent variables was um, accuracy. So we wanted to see the extent to which participants accurately recorded if they had an interaction or if they didn't. So what participants were supposed to do were record if they had an interaction or if they didn't have an interaction every five minutes. And we measured accuracy in a couple of ways. One is if they accurately identified that they did have an interaction and then they recorded that they had an interaction. And then we looked at if they did not have an interaction did they record that they didn't have an interaction? And we compared those data to um, our observation data just to see how accurate were they in actual, actually recording if they had an interaction or not. Um, we had a, 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 a second secondary DV, which involved trying to analyze when within the five minute interval participants would have an interaction. There's no literature to suggest that minute one versus minute five is better or anything, but we are worried that there would either be like scalloping every interval or somehow the beep to prompt self-monitoring would function differently and prompt um, engagement or interaction in some way. So we wanted to look at that. We divided every five minute into a one minute interval and coded where or you know where within each one minute the interaction occurred and then we aggregated those data to look at minute one minute two minute three minute four minute five um, so th those were the two that we looked at this is where i have to sort of practice some self-discipline because i immediately want to go well, what were the results for those yeah. those variables and so every like ounce of self-control I have, it's like, just get through the, the rest of the, the methods, Cody. Uh, don't, don't, don't bury the lead here. So, uh, so interested in those. I think those are fascinating. But before we get into what you found, can we talk a little bit more about your particular independent variable 
how that was set up, sort of the, the intricacies of what that looked like? Sure, so we were using technology-based self-monitoring. Um, and what that looked like was I provided a Samsung Tablet A6 to the participants um, and it had two apps on it. One was called County. And I actually originally found out about this app when I was in my undergrad, we used it to collect um, inter observer agreement data. So I knew that there was an app out there that collected frequency, duration, and, I, and it was pretty intuitive to use. So that was our app that we used in order to self-monitor. And then another app was an interval timer. Um, and the purpose of that was to remind participants to self-monitor. Um, we were worried that throughout 30 minutes, because participants are busy and can get caught up, that they would forget or not actually self-monitor. Um, so we had that interval timer beep every one beep would happen at four minutes and 30 seconds, and then another beep would happen 30 seconds after at that five minute interval. And that was just a signal, okay, five minutes is up. Did I have an interaction or did I not have an interaction? Um, and those were the only two apps that were really on that tablet. So we were reducing a lot of potential distraction from other apps that could be on that tablet. That makes sense. So you said it, it beeped at five minutes, which is the sort of the, the period of interest. And then again, at 30 seconds, is that right? At four minutes and 30 seconds. Oh, so it's like a warning. And then at the five. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So like 435. Okay. Um, again, I want to jump right into the, to the results here. Cause I didn't, then I you know, mentioned interested in, did you see a scalp within that sort of double beeping maneuver? Or not, but again, uh, we're just sort of building anticipation here for that. Um, what exactly did the self monitoring look like? Like, what what behavior was required from the participant for this the self monitoring component? Yeah, so the self monitoring part was pretty quick. It would just be that. Um, they would check on the county app if they had an interaction or if they didn't. So it was one button that said interaction and then another button that said no interaction. And that's really all that the screen shows. So once they've started that application, um, it was pretty easy. You open the tablet. I think our passcode was a check mark. It was some of those like the nine dots three by three, and it was a checklist or a check mark. And then Sandra, the... don't give away our password. Oh, you're right. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> um, so it was pretty easy for the participants to pick up the tablet. Some of them would carry it around in their back pocket. The tablets weren't very big, um, or they could leave it on a, a counter or a table. Um, we also selected that tablet in particular be because I had seen from my own experience, but then also it was advertised that they are very durable. So in the event that it was dropped or um, a consumer is engaging in property destruction, that tablet wouldn't had a lowered likelihood of breaking. So they were able to carry it around with them. It was very um, trying to make it as burdenless as possible. That makes sense. With some of the data collection stuff I've looked at, people often go, but if they have an iPad, aren't the clients going to be harassing them to get access to the iPad? 
and that's just not really been my experience with with the studies was that your experience for the with that were the clients in the group homes trying to steal the ipad from them you know i never observed it myself um I know obviously there were other times of the day that the tablet was there, but they would put the tablets in a locked cabinet when they weren't using them. And because there weren't any other apps downloaded, honestly, the tablets weren't any fun. Um, some internet access, and then really that was just those two. So even if some a consumer wanted to download, play a game, or even if one of the staff wanted to download anything, they didn't have the passwords for that. So it was really just, if you wanted to do something with the tablet, I guess you could set timers or observe, self-monitor other behaviors, but we didn't see any of that. That makes sense. When they were hitting the, like, did have interaction, did not have interaction, it's just two buttons. So it doesn't, it's not like, did have interaction from whatever, 3.30 to 3.05. It, it's just literally did, did not. And then within the data that you get on the backside of that, does is it like timestamped or like, how do you, yeah. Yeah, so we were able to see a timestamp of exactly when they would self-monitor, which is how we were able to look into some of that accuracy data. Um, but really on their end, it was, did they have an interaction or not during that five minute interval? And that could technically mean that they had six different types of interactions in that five minutes. They could have had a conversation and greeted another consumer and praised somebody else. But we wanted to just see overall for that five minutes, did they have an interaction or not, regardless of how many there were or the, the quality of them. And the reason we didn't have participants record every single type of interaction was we didn't want to make having to self-monitor every time they said hi or thank you or how are you doing today because hopefully that would be a lot of times and we wouldn't want to have to be every single time you know the participants are clicking that had an interaction had an interaction button so we thought that once every five minutes was sufficient to monitor how many interactions they were having, but not be too burdensome on how many times they were supposed to interact. So, Sandra, those are really great points. I also would just mention that the agency standard, we are trying to align our, our measurement with that. So it was roughly every five minutes and, you know, got a little wiggle room knowing that staff get pulled into the different activities, but if the agency wasn't concerned about whether 50 interactions happened in five minutes or just one, um, it would be a lot to, to ourselves measure that or also require people to self-monitor that. And we also didn't want self-monitor, sorry, didn't want interactions to decrease because they were tied to more data collection. We certainly wouldn't want that to be an outcome. Yeah, that would be a, an issue. Yeah. And, and at the sort of beginning, when you're talking about self-monitoring, uh, Sandra, and you're saying, well, we didn't know, like, it's not like we knew this was going to have an effect for all we know it could decrease. Potentially, if it was every interaction, if it's aversive to enter data, which, you know, it potentially is for many people, you're adding, albeit probably a, a sort of a, a sort of a light punishment contingency, but a punishment contingency in there, nevertheless, positive. Every time I talk to someone, I've got to take data on it. So right. <laughs> if, if they're taking data every five minutes, regardless, right, whether you interacted or not, 
you sort of control for that potential effect, which which makes a lot of sense and uh, hopefully is helpful. How did you set up the experimental evaluation of this? So like what type of research design did you use to, to look at these uh, uh, variables? So we used a couple of different designs and it was a really good lesson in being flexible and not letting your desire to have the gold standard of a research design when in application you do need to think critically about what you actually are trying to accomplish. So for one participant, we used an AB-AB design. And then for two participants, we used a non-concurrent multiple baseline design across participants. The AB-AB design um, was essentially because in our intervention phase, we were getting mastery from the participant. So we were able to withdraw and then reinstate self-monitoring. And then for the other participants, when we implemented self-monitoring, we saw some increases, but we wanted it to be even more. So we layered on another intervention um, to hopefully increase the percentages of interactions even more. Um, but it wasn't because we wanted to have, you know, a perfect ABAB design for everybody. We could have done that, but in order for us to see the changes that we wanted to see, um, using the designs that would allow for those changes to be, to occur was, was how we set up our design. What Sandra's also not saying is that to collect one data point would sometimes take a solid week. Um, because of scheduling. And so this study lasted months and months. And at some point with the turnover rates in human service settings, we were like, we can't reverse, you know, we're not sure that they'll still be here or we have to wrap up the study. We can't, this isn't an indefinite thing we can do. And we opted for multiple baseline designs so that we could hopefully show experimental control without having to re reverse and lengthen it even more. Probably my favorite part about doing this show, my favorite thing that I get to talk about with researchers is hearing about the pivots that people make in, in sort of research designs. I think that's unbelievably important when you're, when you're looking at actually doing you know, any type of research and, and demonstrate experimental control. My, my thesis study at Western Michigan University, I think we changed the plan for the design, I think four times, <laughs> like, and every time I had to go back to my committee and get permission too. it was like, you know, it's a whole thing. So, um, so yeah, so the was what, what did you, what was the starting out plan? Was it, was it starting out as an ABAB reversal? And then it was the pivot to the, the, the multiple baseline with the two participants. Yeah, I think our original plan was to do an ABAB with an embedded multiple ah. baseline. So we were going to have, you know, multiple participants and extend and stagger the intervention um, across participants. But when we saw how the intervention phase actually played out for the participants, um, I remember sitting in Flo's office and she's like, let's think broadly about what's happening here. Um, so just as a tag, as a graduate student, it is important that you choose an advisor who's going to slow you down and 
when you make a decision, how do you reflect back on that to make sure that every step of the way you're making the best choice possible? Um, I, after that meeting, I was like, man, I really wanted to do an A, B, A, B, but I learned so much of being flexible and actually thinking about what you're doing so that you can get a result that you need so that the people you're working with are getting the outcomes that you ultimately want. That makes sense. And I think the people who are oftentimes more successful are people who are not married to the design, right? Understand the importance of demonstrating experimental control, but understand the goal is to demonstrate experimental control, not to follow this design that we thought would be best before we started seeing all these real life variables thrown at us. In, in being able to pivot in, in a way to, you know, salvage or maybe even improve what you're evaluating. And I think this pivot is, is, is really great. And, and I think, you know, the data sort of speak for themselves to, to sort of go back and to wrap up a piece of the independent variable. So with the two participants, Billy and Carson, who we're in the multiple baseline design. You added a piece on, on that sort of final phase of the multiple baseline. Can you talk about what that is? For the second portion that we included was feedback in addition to self-monitoring. And the feedback was sent to the participants through text message, um, pretty quick text message that we sent in the morning to ask one if they could self-monitor that afternoon. Um, we sent text messages to all of the participants before their session in the morning so that we could see, you know, are they going out on a community outing? Are they going to be in the home? Um, and, and also asking if they wanted to self-monitor that day. Um, we didn't want to be coercive at all of you have to self-monitor. It, it really was their option um, if they wanted to or not. So we texted them in the morning if they were able to self-monitor and then within that same text message provided feedback of how many, the percentage of intervals that they had an interaction in their previous session. Um, and if they met the criteria, we said, hey, great job, keep it up. If they didn't meet our criteria, we said something along the lines of you engaged in X percent of intervals with an interaction. We're trying to get to 80% was our criteria. Um, and if they weren't able to meet that, if they had any questions or if they wanted help from us, um, we didn't get any questions with, with um, as a result of the feedback, but um, we wanted to use feedback through text messages for a few reasons. Um, one was that text message-based feedback hadn't ever been evaluated in group homes. Um, so we wanted to see, you know, along with the technology, could we bring in text messages? Um, in addition to that, using feedback through text messages, just because it was so common, people know how to text, it would be easy to teach and implement. Um, therefore, it wouldn't take intensive amounts of trainings. We also saw that it could be cost-effective because people have cell phones, the staff already had phones, um, supervisors, you know, everybody has phones these days. Um, essentially, we used feedback from phones um, through text message, and um, we found that to be just the addition to self-monitoring. 
That's awesome. And, and, and interesting for a few reasons. Uh, you know, one of the areas of, of research that actually drew me into behavior analysis is the timing of, of, of feedback. And so, you know, I think, I, you know, maybe, maybe I'm sort of overstating when I say, I think a lot of people tend to think about feedback as something that comes immediately after the performance. And then there's, you know, researchers such as Elian Aljeff Burgle, who started putting feedback before the next performance, which fun fact, I was a research assistant on that study. And that's what really drew me into behavior analysis or one of the big things that pulled me into behavior analysis. Um, but in any event, looking at that sort of the difference between that and you sort of did, you're providing it a little bit maybe earlier or more sort of temporally distant than maybe even Elian did in her study where you're doing it in the morning on the day of the performance. Is that right? Right. So it was not immediately after they engaged in self-monitoring. It was potentially the next day if they were able to self-monitor that next day. But with the way that their shifts went, it could be up to a whole week of getting that feedback to them. Um, and it was honestly closer to the start of their next session that they would receive the feedback than it was to when self-monitoring actually occurred. What was the feedback? I think you said it was about the, the last session that they did. Was it just like percent overall, like, you know, and in the, in the, you had whatever 80% of the intervals had a, a positive interaction? Like, what did that look like? Yeah, so we sent them the percent that of intervals that they had an interaction. So um, there were six intervals, six intervals makes up that 30 minutes. So if they interacted in three intervals, it would be 50%. Um, I think it was, if they actually interacted in five of the six intervals, it's 83.3%. Um, so we would actually tell them that exact percent of five minute intervals with an interaction that they, they had one in. Nice. And so what did, what did you see? And, and just because we can't, you know, easily describe a graph, you know, I kind of blend the results and discussion together. So looking at that first independent variable of, of the percent of intervals that contained a positive interaction, what did you see in general across your participants? So overall, we saw in baseline, they had um, variable or decreasing trends of percentages of interactions. Um, so across time, we were able to implement self-monitoring. And when we did implement self-monitoring, we saw that each participant did increase their percentages of interactions. For the first participant, Sierra, we met our mastery criteria. She had been implementing self-monitoring for more than you know 10 sessions it, and it had generally been going well. So we were able to withdraw. And when we withdrew, this is something we didn't write about in the manuscript, but we thought about how do we withdraw self-monitoring? We have to take the tablet away. So um, we had to take that out. And what we did was went, I went to the house and I 
messaged them before that I needed to do some updates with the tablets, which was true, um, but it kind of guaranteed that we were able to take the self-monitoring tablet away and therefore ensuring that she couldn't self-monitor during the withdrawal phase um, yeah, and over time. Yeah. I was going to say that's fascinating. Yeah, I was, well, I was going to ask you that very question. Really interesting. Great, great strategy and, you know, being able to do that. But yeah, I was thinking, how, how do you withdraw this intervention? It makes sense if you have a specific uh, tool to use it with, if, if you can sort of hold on to that tool, then, then they can't do it in the same way. Right. Um, and it kind of just made it a natural way to ensure that she couldn't self-monitor with the tablet being there. And it was completely removed from the environment. There could be no prompts. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to interact even with the tablet being in the home. And over time we saw that through her withdrawal, she did start to decrease in the, not the percentage of intervals with a positive interaction. So we were able to give the tablet back, say, okay, it's been updated, here you go. And when she was self-monitoring, we did see an immediate increase back to those levels towards the end of her previous self-monitoring phase. For Billy and Carson, who were part of the multiple baseline design um, in baseline, we saw some variability, but ultimately low decreasing trends. So when we implemented self-monitoring, fortunately we did see some increase in the percentages with a positive interaction, but we weren't quite, they weren't quite getting to the point and the levels that we wanted that would meet the agency criteria of approximately once every five minutes. Um, so we brainstormed some things. Um, Flo was interested in the feedback via text message. I thought it was a great idea. And we started to layer on that feedback. Um, and with the addition of that feedback, we saw increases in their percentages of intervals with a positive interaction. And, and ultimately achieved that, that performance criterion you were looking at, right? Right. Yes. We ultimately achieved that criterion. What did you see with the other two variables uh, or the other two? Um, uh, gosh, now I'm blanking on words. Yeah. What did, yeah. What did you see with the secondary uh, variables you were looking at? Yeah, so with our levels of accuracy, we did see participants weren't very accurate with self-monitoring. Percentages were between 21 and almost 68%. So overall, really not the best, but it's fascinating because we still saw increases in their percentages of intervals with a positive interaction, regardless of their accuracy. Um, we broke down their accuracy a little bit more into errors of omission and commission. Um, the errors of omission were meant that the participant either recorded that there was no interaction or did not record, but the, we, we saw that they did um, have an interaction. And for Billy, she had 71 total omissions but 69 were because she just didn't record. Um, and that was pretty similar across all participants. So it wasn't necessarily that they were um, recording that they did not have an interaction, but it was just that they overall didn't record. Um, for areas of commission, 
that meant that the participant recorded that there was an interaction, but the observer myself recorded that they did not have an interaction. So if you take Carson, for example, he had 22% errors of commission. Um, so he was recording that he had an interaction, but in reality, we didn't see one. And the overall patterns of commission were that participants generally had lower levels of those types of errors. Um, so overall, seemingly, it's not so much they were claiming to interact and, and when they in fact did not so much as they're just not recording the data. Right, right. It was more that their errors of accuracy were that they wouldn't actually self-monitor rather than, yeah, I had an interaction when they didn't, or no, I never had an interaction, but they actually did. Um, errors were predominantly that they just wouldn't self-monitor. That makes sense. And, and what about the, the variable looking at whether behavior was um, scalping throughout? Well, we found no real pattern to that with respect to which intervals uh, participants engaged with uh, consumers and had an interaction, which was interesting in and of itself. We also found that there were numerous intervals post-intervention where participants would have multiple interactions. Occasionally, we'd have an interval without one. Um, that usually was um, next to or adjacent to an interval where there were multiple ones. So it could have been off by 10, 10 seconds. You know, and they're not sitting there with a stopwatch making sure that every you know, five, they hear the beep, but they're you know, moving about and whatnot. So that was exciting to us. And um, Sandra could dive a bit more into that. We were really hoping that our intervention would result in more interactions than the agency standard, even though that wasn't an expectation that was communicated or something that we trained. Ideally, folks are interacting with people in their own homes, right? <laughs> That's what you would want to see. And um, this permitted us to look, look at that. Um, and we were really surprised and happy with the outcome. And Sandra, I'll let you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we actually broke down the number of one minute intervals that had an interaction. So we, as the experimenters, yes, our primary dependent variable was the percent of five minute intervals, um, meaning every five minutes we would see if they had an interaction, but we broke those down, those five minute intervals into one minute intervals to see where interactions were occurring and if multiple one minute intervals had interactions, which would sort of suggest that more than one interaction was happening every five minutes. Um, and some data that we didn't publish shows it baseline, you know, they were averaging about 10% of one minute intervals with an interaction, but with self-monitoring, those one minute intervals did increase to above what you would expect to see if somebody was interacting one time every five minutes. Um, and then when we additionally put on self-monitoring and feedback for Billy and Carson, we do see that the percent of one minute intervals kind of skyrockets and we are getting a lot more um, interactions from the self-monitoring and the feedback than just self-monitoring alone. That's awesome. So you kind of, overshot your your goal in many ways 
which is, you know, never a bad thing when you're talking about something that is as pro-social as positive interactions, right? Right. Yeah, now, we're really happy with that outcome. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting outcome. Now, I want to be sort of mindful of time here, uh, and, and I want to give you guys time to sort of discuss some of the some of the overall takeaways, sort of putting it all together that you that you saw with this, or you know, looking at the results that you you have. Are there other questions that you have related to this topic that you want to explore? Sort of anything, anything else uh, on this topic to mention? So we uh, did not ask the agency to adopt these practices because we felt like more needed to be studied. Firstly, we didn't only got one of three social validity surveys returned to us. And so we interpreted that as maybe participants didn't find this to be an acceptable intervention to improve their interactions. We wanted to better understand that. Um, we also wanted to um, figure out a way to make self-monitoring by itself more effective. And that was a potential area for future study. And then if we were going to ask the agency to adopt these practices, we would want to uh, examine whether the equipment that was baked into the smart homes could be effective so that they didn't have to have a supplemental tablet. Uh, so those were three areas we wanted to further explore. We never did because shortly after uh, Sandra started writing this up for her thesis, we experienced a global pandemic and you know a lot of research was just put on, on hold and we're just now starting to get in-person research um, going again. We did do some remote research, but this was not a priority for the agency at the time. Sandra just had a conversation with some folks at the agency recently about perhaps reinstating some of this research. So Sandra, I'll let you talk a little bit about that. I was um, excited when I, I got a couple emails from folks either talking about wanting to look over some of the methodology and how can we actually implement this. And those were some of the BCBAs that work in these group homes. And on top of that, um, from other people who have who read the article and are excited to implement, see how you can use technology, use apps on your phone to self-monitor different behaviors um, just to track them. So I was I was excited to see that. That's awesome. Do you are you at all interested in like continuing this type of research for your dissertation or you know anything like that? A big, 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 scary question for you right now. <laughs> um, I am, you know, in the thick of doing my dissertation. It's not in self-monitoring, but I think a lot of the looking at technology, breaking down different components in a research study to finding gaps and what needs to be updated, what needs to, um, what can actually improve service delivery in a cost-effective and it in an informed way um, is really what I'm taking from this, just because we did see some results that we wanted and um, I was excited for those. And I hope that the interactions that staff were having were affecting consumers positively. Um, it was cool throughout the study to see, and this is all anecdotal, just to see people who had lower rates or lower percentages of interactions 
start to have more interactions when they were self-monitoring and um, just watching people laugh or give compliments and um, having the staff go out of their way a little bit more to make sure that they are interacting with, with the consumers was, um, I'm happy to, to have that and leave it there. Yeah, well, I think I could probably ask the two of you questions about group homes and, and technology-based interventions all day long. Very much a major interest of mine, but I do want to be respectful of everyone's time. So with that, I'm just going to say, you know, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today and, and, and sharing your research with us. I think the listeners are really going to like this. And so thank you. Thank you, Cody. This was fun. Yeah, it was great getting to talk to you and I hope everyone enjoys. Well, that does it for this season. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, please subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use and find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bad papers that we should review. We'll be planning and and starting to work on season five before we know it. So we'd love to hear from you before then. I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Narvaez and Jesse Perrin. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast. <laughs>